0: Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast, I'm Adam. Firstly, a huge thank you to my new supporters on Patreon this week. Lucky Jean, Sally Ingram and Nikki Beston. I really appreciate the support, I genuinely really, really do. And I hope you enjoy the bonus episodes and all the other benefits that come with being a supporter of the show on Patreon. Today, we head to the world of the true crime enthusiast, Beautiful North Wales. We are heading back to the 1990s, and unusually for this podcast, we are looking at a serial killer. Now, don't worry, this isn't the usual case you can hear covered numerous times, expertly, I should add, on a variety of true crime podcasts. As you know, that isn't really my thing. This is a serial killer I'd never heard of until I started researching the case. I'd be really interested to know if you know about this case please let me know on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or even email. The events of this case started in 1995, when top of the UK singles chart was the classic Boom Bastic by Shaggy. Got to love that tune, haven't you? And in the US, it was Coolio with Gangster's Paradise. I think this has been the first week for ages that I've actually known both songs. It's tough getting old. Elsewhere in the world at this time, and staying on the musical theme, this was the month that legend Tupac was shot in Vegas. For a long time, I just didn't realise how, for so many, his death was just the most massive event and terrible loss. In the UK, the Spice Girls had just released their first single, Wannabe. Now, come on, who was your favourite? Mine was Posh Spice at the time, although, now I'm a bit older, I'm more of a sporty man. Alan Shearer became the most expensive footballer with his £15 million transfer from Blackburn to Newcastle. £15 million, wow, spell about a month's salary now for top players. And Prince Charles and Diana divorced after 15 years of marriage. So today's case. It's September 1995 and we are in North Wales. John Henry Roberts, aged 56, was a retired railway worker who lived in semi-isolation and even you could say squalor, in a small farmhouse in Holyhead. Holyhead is in the county of Anglesey, which is it's around an hour and a half's drive west of Liverpool. For those unfamiliar with Wales, travelling via road south to the capital of Cardiff will take a good four and a half hours via, well, for the UK, very interesting terrain. Although John didn't give the appearance of having money, he was actually pretty comfortably off due to a large redundancy payment and family inheritances. John was a Nazi paraphernalia enthusiast and he had a swastika flag on the wall of his cottage. A regular at his local pub. After he'd not been seen there for three days, a friend went to look for him at his cottage. After getting no answer at the door, he looked around the garden, where he found John lying face down near an outhouse. His trousers were round his ankles and he'd been stabbed in each buttock. These were not his only wounds and they hadn't contributed directly to his death. He was killed by a stab wound directly to his heart. In fact John's body was covered in stab wounds with 14 on the front and 13 on his back suggesting a frenzied vicious attack. John had a pet Labrador who was found inside the house whimpering for his owner. I've got four cats and a dog and i love animals as most of you do I guess. I wonder what happened to his poor dog. The poor thing must have been devastated, losing his master. Hopefully John's pet went to a good home. Leading the major manhunt for his killer, Detective Superintendent Eric Jones admitted that police had few clues about a motive for the killing. The whole area was stunned. People who knew John described him as a harmless man, a village eccentric who wouldn't hurt a fly. John was a gay man and privately investigators suspected there may have been a sexual element to his murder as his trousers were around his ankles and he'd been stabbed in the buttocks. Police also noticed that John's distinctive swastika flag was missing. But they were puzzled at a motive for killing this seemingly gentle man. Just a month later, police found another body. Keith Randalls, 49, was a divorced father of two daughters who had recently lost his middle management job and had taken a role as a traffic safety officer looking after roadworks on the A5 road to Anglesey, just to make ends meet. Keith, originally from just across the border with England in Chester, was described as an ordinary, harmless, conscientious man who had a reputation for shy good humour. He'd been living in a caravan on a compound alongside the A5 at the time of the attack. At about 9.30pm on November the 29th, He'd gone to a fish and chip shop, but that was the last time he was seen alive. At about 2.45am, a a man driving from Hollyhead had seen a Ford Transit van near Roadworks. When workmen had arrived at about 7.30am, they found Keith's body near the caravan. Although police considered a connection to the death of John Roberts, they had no leads and no information on which to base this. Just why would anyone have wanted to kill Keith? Unlike John, Keith wasn't gay, so did this rule out the sexual motive for murder? In that case, was it just an indiscriminate killer? Or were there two murderers attacking middle aged men on the loose in North Wales in late 1995? Just two weeks later, the police had another dead body. On the evening of the 17th of December, 35 year old crematorium worker and father of two, Tony Davis, who lived near Colwyn Bay in North Wales with his wife Sheila, told his wife that he was off to see his aunt, who'd just been discharged from hospital with a broken leg. It was 11pm. By 4.30am, his wife Sheila was concerned enough to call his aunt to find out just where her husband had got to and to see if he was planning to come home any time soon. When his aunt told her that Tony had left her home three hours before, she was filled with a sense of dread that something was terribly wrong. And her feelings were right. After leaving his aunt's house, Tony hadn't gone home, but instead had driven to Pensarn Beach near Colwyn Bay, which was a well-known cruising venue for gay men. Whoever he met there stabbed Tony six times by the water's edge, leaving him dying on the sand. Police were baffled. Although a married man, if Tony was at Pensarn Beach late at night where men actively look for sex... Was there a murderer out there targeting gay men? Was this murder connected to the death of John Roberts and possibly even Keith Randalls? Did he have a secret life that was unknown to police? Back in 1995, views towards the gay community were very different to today and despite their appeals to the gay community, if there were witnesses to this attack, they were unwilling to come forward and speak to the police. But the police realised they had to do something to attempt to stop the killings and no one was talking and giving anything away. In desperation, they opened a confidential hotline after the death of Tony Davis, aimed at the gay community. Within the first few days, one name kept coming up as someone who'd been violent towards gay men. One man even told police he'd been taken to his house six months ago and tortured, but he hadn't told anyone what had happened because of the shame. The man named was Peter Moore. Peter Moore was born in 1940 in St Helens, which is not far from Liverpool. He lived in Rhyl, North Wales, with his mum until her death. She doted on him, calling him her miracle son, as he was born when she was in her 40s. A tall man with mousy hair and a grey moustache, to many, Moore was a respected entrepreneur running a chain of local cinemas. He was regarded by the parents as a kindly local businessman, who was trying to pump life back into a number of cinemas, which he owned in North Wales. These weren't the modern multiplex theatres that we go to nowadays, but the old-fashioned flea pit type of picture house that many of you of a certain age will remember. Peter Moore was known locally as the Man in Black, because of his habit of dressing exclusively in black clothing. He said that this was because black outfits were the traditional mode of dress for theatre workers, and this is what he considered himself to be. Man in black, what do you think of? If it was my dad, he'd think of Roy Orperson. I think of Johnny Cash. But hey, Peter Moore, he was the man in black. One local person in North Wales described her memories of Peter Moore as follows. It was a normal Saturday morning in the early 1990s. And in the sleepy North Wales town of Denby, my wife Sharon and I were off to do our weekly shop at the local supermarket. We followed the usual Saturday routine of dropping our kids, a boy and a girl, at the local cinema, The Futura. Here, the owner-manager, a man called Peter Moore, ran a Saturday morning club for children. The kids would be entertained by a matinee children's film, and would be treated to snacks and pop in the cinema's little snack bar. Many local parents would drop their kids off into the care of Peter Moore, go off to do their shopping and pick them up again afterwards. Really, it was an ideal arrangement. Peter Moore appealed to be an affable and trustworthy businessman, an upstanding member of the local community. But in reality, the 49-year-old was a sadistic killer who was targeting men at night. Fascinated with the wartime Nazi party, he would go to gay meeting places across North Wales in Nazi-style caps and leather boots with a large knife or truncheon. He thought this gave him the dominating and overbearing appearance he sought to frighten his victims, because this is what gave him the sexual pleasure. Although Moore was very close to his mother, he shared a very strained relationship with his father as an effeminate child, reportedly suffering episodes of bullying and drunken abuse. Years later, as an openly gay man, Moore increasingly looked to exert control, dominating his male staff in his hardware shop, and often taken them on as lovers. In reality, his private life had a far darker side. From the 1970s until the early 90s, Moore dressed in black and hunted at night, committing scores of sexual assaults on local men. The death of his doting mother in 1994 triggered a horrific escalation of violence as the man in black turned to murder, ending the lives of four men in a matter of months. Asked later whether killing gave him sexual pleasure, Moore replied, Yes, there's a certain excitement from it, but it certainly wasn't a sexual excitement. Like everything, it was a job well done. When detectives quizzed him on why he'd begun killing, Moore said that his mother's death, followed by the death of two dogs, a cat and some coy cart, had pushed him over the edge. No, he really did say that. Death literally seemed to be following me, he said and the act of killing left him with a feeling of peace. He said that he missed his mother dreadfully. The former cinema manager's killing spree began in 1995, after he became fixated with Jason Voorhees, the fictional murder in the Friday the 13th series of slasher movies. Some detectives suspected that Moore's violence was caused by anger at his own sexuality, as Moore, who openly admitted that he killed for fun, said he would actually take pleasure in encounters with gather gay men before attacking them. But others suspected the violence was a mechanism to help him forget other issues in his life. Although on the outside Moore was successful, when distributors sent films to multiplexes, he started losing trade. It was even suggested that he killed to forget his financial problems, or at least in part. When detectives turned up at his home on the 21st of December 1995, They found a whole range of sexual equipment, including handcuffs and rubber gags. There was an incongruous mixture of chintz curtains, a pair of fluffy toy kittens on a bed, a Nazi flag, handcuffs and military uniforms. The walls of the living room were decorated with strings of Christmas cards, crackers lay on the sideboard and two recent copies of the Daily Post were shown, both carrying front-page stories on the murder of Tony Davis. On a shelf in Moore's bedroom were a police helmet, two German military caps and a pair of long black boots. Hanging on the cupboard outside the bed was a truncheon and a sergeant's uniform hung in the wardrobe. An unrepentant Moore happily confessed to police, even telling them about the second victim, Edward Carthy, who had not yet been found. Edward was killed a month after John Roberts, when Moore was looking for another victim in a Liverpool gay bar. Edward, aged 28, from Birkenhead near Liverpool, was a drug addict and an alcoholic. Edward wanted Moore to drive him to his home in Birkenhead for sex, but instead Moore drove him to North Wales. When Edward realised he'd met a monster, he desperately tried to escape the van while Moore was driving. He was unable to escape, and we can only imagine his terror as he pondered what was going to happen to him. I wonder if he realised that Moore actually planned to kill him, In the event, Edward was stabbed four times and buried in dense forest. Moore happily drew police a diagram, helping them to locate the body. He sniggered as he told police about how the clearly terrified Edward died, saying, I think he got a bit frightened actually. At his trial at Mould Crown Court in November 1996, the prosecution said that the nocturnal Peter Moore was one of the most dangerous people ever to have set foot in Wales. Although he's on trial for four murders, it was claimed that Moore attacked more than 50 other men in what the judge described as 20 years of terror. Many of them were actually attacked in his cinema, the cinema where where children went on a Saturday morning unattended. Even his own defence barrister said, I hold no brief for Moore's way of life. On his own admission, he is a bad man. The man in black, black thoughts, and the blackest of deeds, barrister Alex Carlyle QC told a jury as he opened the prosecution case against Moore. The court heard that John Roberts was just unlucky, as his house was located just off Moore's route home from one of his cinemas. The testimony was horrible, as they heard that John tried to protest he was not Jewish as Moore launched 27 blows with a combat knife he bought a few days earlier for £25. Keith Randall's too was also killed purely as he was on the route that Moore took home. He opened the door of his caravan late at night to be attacked by Moore. He stabbed him 12 times. Moore said that Keith begged for his life for the sake of his grandchildren and asked Moore why he was stabbing him. I said, fun. He looked nonplussed. He carried on screaming. As trophies, Moore took Keith's video recorder and his mobile phone. Then we get to the death of Tony Davis. Moore told detectives he'd been cruising the area looking for a victim when he saw Tony. Moore watched as Tony got out of his car, lit a cigarette and walked to the water's edge. Moore walked towards him and when he reached Tony, Tony's trousers were round his ankles exposing himself. I just took the knife out and stabbed him, he said. I think he screamed or shouted a bit. Moore killed him with six stabs. And blood found on the beach was matched by DNA Profile to Moore. When police searched his home, they found items belonging to his victims, both in the house and in a garden pond. From Tony Davis, his duffel bag was in the house and his car keys in the fish pond. A knife bearing traces of the blood of a number of men was found in a bag belonging to Moore. Although he'd earlier confessed to the murders... Moore now claimed he was not guilty. He claimed the crimes were committed by a gay lover of his he nicknamed Jason, after the killer in the Friday the 13th horror films. As we said before, he was obsessed by those films, and Jason's character in particular. The jury of eight men and four women took just two hours and 35 minutes to find him guilty. Jailing him, Mr Justice Morris Kaye said he would recommend that Moore spend the rest of his life behind bars, The judge told Moore, You were responsible for four sadistic murders in the space of three months. None of the victims have done you the slightest bit of harm. At no stage have you shown the slightest remorse or regret for the killings, nor for the twenty years of terror and violence that preceded them. I consider you to be as dangerous a man as it's possible to find. I shall have to report to the Secretary of State, advising him of my view as to the earliest date you should be considered for release. I don't want you or anybody else to be in the slightest doubt as to what I shall say. In a word, never. At his trial, Moore showed himself to be a vain man. On one occasion, he was told off in court for being insolent and when he was going through the gates into court, he actually stopped to pose for the camera. He certainly gave the impression he enjoyed being the central figure and being in control. Speaking outside court after the verdict, Edward Carthy's stepmum Lynn revealed that Moore wrote a creepy letter pleading innocence to her daughter Katie before his trial. She was only 14 at the time and he'd written, Dear Katie, like it was a pen pal letter. It was frightening, she said. Lynn said that the health of her father, also called Edward, declined rapidly after his son's murder before dying from emphysemia. She added, it killed my dad off. It affected him in every way, and he never ever got over it. It wasn't just the fact he was murdered, but the way he was murdered. It wiped him out in the end. He got emphysema for it and he couldn't breathe. He wouldn't go over the door or bother of anyone. His wife, Beatrice, said that the grieving father had been destroyed by the murder. My husband was never the same person again. It destroyed him completely. He went into shock, drew into himself, and he wouldn't talk about it. It horrified him. She could still vividly recollect her husband's reaction when police broke the news of how Moore had mutilated his son. She said, There was just absolute silence and he couldn't talk. He sat in the chair while I rang the police to verify what the police were saying, and he never said a word. Moore was back in the news in 1999, when he won nearly £13,000 compensation from a couple he claimed had stolen the contents of his home, including garden gnomes, bizarrely. He claimed that his neighbours had abused an offer from him to become caretaker of his property by selling his belongings at car boot sales. In July 2000, Moore lost his fight to win £160,000 damages from North Wales Police. He accused police of failing to protect his home following his arrest in 1995, but a district judge agreed that the case should be struck out on the grounds that Moore had no realistic chance of winning it at trial. During his time in Wakefield Prison, Moore befriended Harold Shipman, the serial killer and former GP, who hanged himself in January 2004. Moore was one of the last people to speak to Shipman and he gave evidence at his inquest after the doctor killed himself following his conviction for murdering elderly patients. More still appears in the papers now and again. A few years ago he was reported as having died, but these accounts turned out to be untrue. He also tried to place an advert in local papers in North Wales, asking for witnesses to come forward to help prove his innocence. But due to the strong feelings of the families of his victims, he was blocked from doing so. He constantly protests his innocence, which is quite bizarre, considering he readily admitted these murders when he was first quizzed by police. Just this year, a dead male was found close to the location where he buried Edward, and Moore suggested he knew details of the victim, but this doesn't seem to have progressed. As we've heard today, Peter Moore fits all the stereotypes for the cold-blooded serial killer. He was battling confused feelings about his sexuality, and this monster dominated men for his own sexual gratification before the death of his mother led him to go further and kill his victims. And it's hard to imagine the horror they went through. And like so many others, in the community he was seen as a a normal nice guy. A pillar of the community, dare I say. Hundreds of children were left by their trusting parents at his cinema in his care. When news came of his arrest, I wonder how these parents, and the children for that matter, felt. One of the things that fascinates us all, I think, about true crime... It seemed the sheer randomness of people being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And never is this more true than with the victims of Peter Moore. If you get a chance, take a look at the pictures of him online. He's such an unlikely looking serial killer, but then again, as you well know, we just can't tell who is out there who wishes to do us harm. As the excellent UK True Crime podcast says, the other one that is, they walk among us. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please head to iTunes to leave us a fantastic review. Yep, you need to click the five stars, remember? The five star button. Or of course, head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime to support the show. That's all from me for this week, so I look forward to speaking to you next week. But for now, cheerio.